The microbiome is a buzzword almost everyone has heard of, but very few people actually understand. We heard over and over that the microbiome, or changes to the microbiome in the last 30 years, underlies the rise in immune disease. In the last episode, we unraveled that immune disease happens when the immune system makes a mistake. It senses danger or inflammation and starts attacking an innocent thing like a pollen or your own proteins that it sees in the context of that inflammation. For me, a good analogy is cancer. Cancer happens when your body starts building new tissue in a dysfunctional way, also called a tumor. The more you damage your tissues with sun, cigarette smoke, or asbestos, the more your body has to build new tissue. And the more it has to do this, the higher the chances for a mistake, called cancer. So the more inflammation your immune system sees, the more active it is, and the higher the chances that it's going to make a mistake. Inflammation of your barriers can come from the cells not getting nutrients they need, the cells being exposed to harmful bacteria, or from missing immune signals to calm down. What is causing all this inflammation? We don't know everything, but we do know that the microbiome is involved. In this episode, you'll hear what that exactly means. My name is Kyle Bittinger. I'm an assistant professor at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in the Department of Pediatrics and at the Medical School of the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Microbiology. And I study the microbiome. I look at the DNA that is inside bacterial cells. And from that DNA, I try to understand who those bacteria are, what they can do, and how they live together, how they live with us. To start, we need a definition of the microbiome. Here's Dr. Bittinger's. So we have many millions of microbes small, tiny organisms that you can't see with the naked eye living inside us all the time. And we each carry around our own set of microbes. These microbes, they eat chemicals, they eat sugar, they make chemicals that are then absorbed by our body. The whole set of, of microbes that we're carrying and their, their chemicals and the other things that they're making that's the microbiome. When I study these organisms, I try to think of them all together rather than one by one. You may think that the microbiome is a recent buzzword, but we've actually known about it for a very long time. The early biologists knew about microorganisms and they could look at them under a microscope and see them. So they knew they were there all inside our bodies. And it was also clear that the microbes were important to us and important in ways that we still think about for the microbiome. Like, like they knew that microbes were producing molecules that were important to our body. What's changed, especially recently, is the methods that people were able to use to study these things. In, in the early 2000s, people were finally able to do DNA sequencing where they could kind of tally up the different microorganisms that were present together in an environment. So we've long known that our microbiome produces chemicals, oils, vitamins, and nutrients that our cells need. But until recent DNA advances, we couldn't figure out which organisms were doing what. And have you heard that the microbiome is a major player in the prevalence and incidence of autoimmune and allergic diseases? Do you agree that the microbiome is implicated in the rise of immune diseases? I, I would say that's a that's a widely held view, and there's there's certainly a lot of evidence to go behind a general statement like that. 
Yeah, I, I don't think that I don't think that any scientist operating in in the field of medicine would would look at you oddly if you said something like that as a general statement. They'd say, "Okay, tell me more now." I bet you're surprised that he considers this a widely held sentiment. As a parent, no one had ever mentioned about the microbiome's role in my son's immune diseases. The microbiome is the gut microbiome especially is just like a major organ in our body. It's connected to everything, of course. So it's going to be involved in many many diseases. And in that way it's it's not really so surprising. Our immune system is tuned into microbes that we come in contact with. It has to be to protect our body and most of those microorganisms are in the gut. So of course it's going to like focus on the gut. And if something's going haywire in the gut, it's also going to affect our immune system and its development. So, in one way of thinking about it, if you think about the microbiome as just a major organ in our body, not so surprising that it's involved in a lot of this stuff. When someone has a severe disease like Crohn's disease, where the lower gut is going haywire, and when a doctor looks inside, the doctor can see major inflammation, that's the kind of situation where the microbiome begins to tilt off axis and organisms begin to fundamentally change the metabolism that they're engaging in instead of doing their normal activity of crunching away on dietary fiber that's left over from your last meal they start to metabolize amino acids and other elements of the mucus in the lower gut and that's when the the system really goes haywire here was one example of how the wrong microbes can cause barrier dysfunction. The wrong microbes here actually eat your amino acids, and then they basically create holes in your lower gut. The term people use for when the system goes haywire is called dysbiosis. People in my field have this idea that's called dysbiosis, and defining it is a little tough. I heard a talk where the the speaker basically argued that Dysbiosis in the gut should be defined as the ecosystem malfunctioning. So under normal conditions, your gut microbiome is is kind of fulfilling a, a basic role. It's consuming carbohydrates, it's producing molecules. Those molecules are being absorbed into your body. Your epithelial cells are nice and healthy. They're receiving the molecules produced by the microbiome. Everything's working together and your gut is smelly, but very functional and healthy. And then he showed a, a picture of a dysbiotic gut where the system was basically going haywire. It wasn't in a good, healthy equilibrium anymore. It was, so it was like an idea of dysbiosis as disequilibrium of the whole ecosystem. And I think that's dysbiosis. This is important to understand. The microbiome goes haywire when the whole ecosystem is out of balance. In nature, bacteria don't live in isolation as we normally study them in a laboratory. And so they've evolved for millions and millions and millions of years to live alongside other bacteria. They are engaging in functions that get turned on and off by other bacteria in their environment. And so in that way, the identity of their neighbors and the proportions of their neighbors really matter to what those bacteria 
are, are going to do at that moment in time in your body. Maybe a good example of this is Clostridium difficile infection in the gut. Clostridium difficile infection typically happens when many of the other bacteria in your gut have been eliminated. So you have a reduction in the number of gut species. And one of the things that turns on Clostridium difficile infections is that uh, secondary bile acids go away. Secondary bile acids are made by another bacterium in your gut that's present typically at like 1% abundance. So when your gut species start going away, that that bacterium that's making secondary bile acids is among the first to leave. Then you've got no secondary bile acids uh, circulating in your gut. Clostridium difficile is just ready to be turned on. And then when the infection's raging, Clostridium difficile is kind of fighting for metal to be able to grow and, and do its chemical functions. And Enterococcus is like stealing some of its metal. And so Clostridium difficile switches its chemistry and does more bad stuff just because it's fighting with another bacterium that happens to be around. And so, yeah, it all matters. The first important thing from the example he just gave is all the interplay between bacteria in your gut and what a fine balance they have when you are healthy. We also heard two causes of inflammation. One, a bacteria species that your body relies on for specific chemicals is missing. Or two, when bacteria fight each other, they can cause collateral damage. Here's another example of the microbiome's dance with our development. One of the biggest kind of natural changes that happens in our gut microbiome is due to breastfeeding. So babies, when they breastfeed, there are sugars in breast milk that the human body cannot take advantage of, but specific bacterial species in the gut just love them. And so it's almost as if these sugars are like targeted to those species. The species happen to be part of a normal, healthy functioning microbiome in the lower gut. And so when a baby is breastfeeding, the baby's gut microbiome has a characteristic profile that is enriched for these organisms that love those sugars from breast milk. And when the baby stops breastfeeding, those bacteria go way, way down in abundance because their major food source isn't available to them anymore. And so that's kind of a natural change that you see in, in, the, in the human microbiome. It's not the system becoming unstable or, or messed up in any way, but it's the system responding to different nutrients coming in. We'll hear a bit more about the role of this early microbiome and how it's important to immune disease development in a bit. But first, how does a healthy microbiome become a dysbiotic one? Antibiotics are kind of like a sledgehammer. They, they really do kill bacteria. They do what they say they're going to do. And, and I've seen that in, in study after study. But they kill a lot of bacteria and they don't always kill the bacteria that you think they're going to kill based on the label because you're introducing antibiotics into this highly complex community. If bacteria A dies and bacteria B was depending on bacteria A to do uh, some specific function, then bacteria B is gonna be affected. And it's either gonna have to change or it's not gonna stick around long itself. And so, yeah, the, I think the results of antibiotic intervention in, in humans are fascinating from a scientific point of view, and certainly unexpected from a medical point of view. Maybe not unexpected, maybe using diet solely 
it's unpredictable. Most of Dr. Bittinger's research on which microbes do what focuses on how we might be able to change the microbiome to fix it. So we'll hear more from him again in the treatments episode. But before that, we need to do more exploration of why so many kids' microbiomes are even messed up. Antibiotics alone as the cause of immune disease is an unsatisfactory explanation to me. So many infants develop allergic disease and even autoimmune diseases in their first year of life. They're at home with their moms and dads, they're breastfeeding, and they're undergoing the changes we heard about, but none of them have had antibiotics. I reached out to another expert after hearing her speak at a conference because her work focuses exactly on this question. What the heck is going on with infants? My name is Karina Venter. I'm an allergy specialist dietitian from Denver, Colorado. I also have a faculty position at the University of Colorado and Children's Hospital Colorado, where I am associate professor in pediatric allergy and immunology. How certain are we that the microbiome or dysbiosis of the microbiome is a significant cause of the rise in eczema, asthma, you know, the immune diseases? Well, when we look at different diseases, such as ADHD, autism, which we refer to as neurological diseases, depression, allergic outcomes, autoimmune diseases, we seem to think that they're all linked together by dysbiosis in the gut microbiome. That's what we think at the moment, the anchor is between all of these and the fact that they're all rising at the same rate and um, increasing in the same prevalence uh, rates. What makes me nervous, particularly about the data about the microbiome, is that it's so easy to modulate the gut microbiome. Like, for example, I could have the exact same diet, living in the exact same environment, doing the exact same number of exercise, then you bring a different puppy into my house and my microbiome will change completely. So I think we're more and more beginning to learn that pregnancy may be the key to a lot of what's happening. And one of the mechanisms through which it modulates disease in the child is, is the microbiome, or I'd like to say definitely the microbiome. So everyone's wondering, what does this gut bacteria, skin bacteria have to do with ADHD? What does it have to do with food allergies? How could there possibly be a causal link between these two? So can, you, can you walk us through the logic of yeah. the causal link? I can walk you through the logic of food allergy causal link. And it is because there's two bacteria, um, the bifidobacteria and then the lactobacillus bacteria um, digest fibers. And the fibers are then turned into short chain fatty acids like propionate, acinate and butyrate. From the data we have, butyrate is the most important short-chain fatty acid. Butyrate directly affects the, the function and the upregulation, so the activity of your T-regulatory cells. And the T-regulatory cells are the cells in the immune system that say, let's just calm down. We're not going to go the allergy pathway. We're not going to go the autoimmune disease pathway. We just want everything to just calm down. And so to summarize, if you eat fiber, you've got lactobacillus and bifidobacteria in your gut that will digest those fibers to produce short-chain fatty acids such as butyrate, which will directly interact with your T-regulatory cells. And then eventually we see less food allergy. And this whole pathway has actually been published by Caroline Rudet's group, where they looked at infant diet, high in fruit and vegetable 
um, then more butyrate in the gut they found, more deregulatory cells in the blood they found, and then they clinically saw less allergies in the infants by six years of age. I want to clarify that this particular chain of events of how the microbiome could cause or prevent disease only applies to food allergy. But it is a great example of how the idea that the microbiome affects our immune system and our likelihood of immune disease is proven and not conjecture. Even so, there are many more questions. The microbial diversity is directly affecting the immune system regulation. But which is the most important part? The butyrate? The microbes? Or the behaviors that support the microbes? I recently learned that clarified butter is a great external food source of butyrate. So could food allergy prevention then be as simple as making babies eat a lot of ghee? Desperately hoping somebody's not going to do that study before me because I really think it needs to be done. So there's, there's two sides of the coin. We've already discussed about the importance of butyrate and ghee is one of the only food sources and but definitely the best food source of butyrate. So in many ways, it would make sense if we ask parents to give babies butyrate or you know butyrate containing foods such as ghee. The dark side of the coin is that ghee is a high saturated fat food and that we know that high saturated fat intake negatively affect gut microbiome diversity and therefore reduce butyrate production. But it may just be that if you eat enough butyrate, you don't need a diverse gut microbiome because you already have the butyrate in there. So why would you want a diverse gut microbiome? And so I think the study that's desperate to be done, and, and I've just spoken to somebody that, that may just help me to get this done, is to look at children with high ghee consumption versus children with low ghee consumption, control for other dietary factors, and then look at the butyrate production in their gut, and then also, you know, subsequent allergic disease outcomes. So the jury is out on butyrate. Next level up is to just focus on the bacteria themselves. Well, if there's just a couple of species that we really care about in this pathway, then why don't we just feed babies those species? Why wouldn't that work? Okay, so so why don't we just feed people the good bacteria they want alongside high fiber vegetables and then we can cure everything? And it is interesting that I'm asked this question because I think I have followed microbiome experts across the world asking them this exact same question on hundreds of occasions. And so when I say bifidobacteria are important, lactobacillus species are important, I am like oversimplifying a very, very complex field. And as much as there's certain lactobacillus species that's been associated with reduced food allergies, there's also lactobacillus species that's been associated with increased allergy outcomes. And the same for bifidobacteria. So yes, if we knew which species we needed to prevent allergy, I think we could just feed them. So there's been a lot of research recently on Bifidobacter brevae, but when we actually did the clinical trials, we didn't see the reduction in allergy outcomes and we didn't see that the children who were taking the Bifidobacteria brevae outgrow their cow's milk allergy any quicker. We've got some studies on Lactobacillus GG, which may indicate that if a child takes that, they may outgrow their cow's milk allergy earlier. But again, that study is done in one population. It's not been replicated anywhere else in the world. So perhaps Lactobacillus GG is part of the answer. I, I don't think we know exactly which Lactobacillus species are 
will have a negative effect. That's the other problem. In terms of bifidobacteria, I don't think we're at the point where we can say this is the species we need. But once we have them, perhaps that is the two bacteria or three or five that we can supplement. And perhaps we can nurture their growth once they're in the gut with just fruit and vegetable intake. But until then, our best bet is to just try and get as a diverse microbiome as we possibly can. But we're obviously all hoping to get to the point where we can say these are the bacteria you need. So today we don't know if directly eating butyrate can circumvent problems with the microbiome to prevent disease. And we don't know which species exactly are the ones that are needed, though people are trying to figure that out. Our best bet right now is to create a diverse microbiome with a diverse diet. Before I start with explaining about diet diversity, perhaps I could just summarize to say, why are we interested in diet diversity? You know, is, is that just another buzzword that we like, or is there really some evidence to suggest diet diversity may prevent allergy? So there's a few things I'd like to say. There's only two studies that show an increased diet diversity, reduced food allergy outcomes in later life, and that we looked at diet diversity in infancy. The one study is the study by Caroline Ruday, which I also previously referred to is the study where they then did go to show increased microbial diversity, butyrate production, less allergy. My own study from the Isle of Wight is one of those studies that's guilty of just addressing one part of the puzzle. So we only looked at diet diversity in infancy and then food allergy over the first 10 years of life. So, so is it really overall diversity or why don't we just tell children to eat lots of fruit and vegetables and have more fiber in their diet? We did actually look at different components. So the World Health Organization diversity scale that we used is high in grains. So the grain fiber, fruit and vegetable fiber. Then we looked at just fruit and vegetable diversity by itself. Then we looked at allergen diversity and overall diversity. But the data based on associations clearly showed that whatever increase in diversity we saw, we saw less food allergies. So it wasn't, we couldn't pin it down to just grain or grain fiber diversity or just fruit and vegetable diversity. It was sort of like overall diversity. But every food we put in is probably reducing the risk a bit, or hopefully. It is probably, like I've already explained the pathways, it's increased diet diversity, increased microbial diversity, then the butyrate, and then the T-cell effect. So it's not like just eating a diverse diet is immediately going to tell your immune system to calm down and have less food allergies. I mean, so the confusing thing is all of these diseases show up so early. A lot of these diseases show up within six months, within a year. There's some pretty small range of profiles that babies can have based on the fact that they're just drinking breast milk or formula. So why should there be such drastic variation? Like, and why would, why would one kid who seems to be eating sugar all day apparently be pr producing tons of butyrate? Like, where did I go wrong? So, so what you're asking me is where, where did we go wrong? Because, you know, it's our babies that's got disease. And, you know, every mom wants to breastfeed, have a normal delivery, try and eat healthy in pregnancy. And then the baby has a food allergy. And as a mom myself, I know how you just beat yourself up, you know, about everything you do. But what we're beginning to understand from other um, diseases, particularly obesity, is that it's not just mom, you know, and that what dad eats, preconception, can also affect disease outcomes. And so I think 
that time preconception conception and then obviously during pregnancy i i think is is way more crucial in disease outcomes than we previously believed if you just look at simple healthy eating as measured by the healthy eating index it doesn't prevent allergy you know the mothers can eat as healthy as they want they can have like almost 90 out of 90 which is one of the top scores of whichever of one of the healthy eating indices and the children may still develop um, allergies i think we we're really just beginning to scratch the surface to understand really how nutrition can change everything just one formula compared to another or formula compared to breast milk or breast milk with different compositions because as we know you know you can't compare the breast milk from one mom to another mom has got some very significant effects and this is just one snapshot in time in early life i previously referred to the maternal microbiome and how maternal diet can affect maternal microbiome infant microbiome and most possibly disease outcomes there's one study published by kathy uh, nagler uh, which actually put the fecal samples of children with food allergies into mice that developed food allergies we have some unpublished data as well where we've done the exact same thing with eczema so we took fecal samples from babies with eczema we put it into mice and we gave the mice in michigan eczema <laughs> so it's really fascinating how this all works and it's nothing you did wrong because we just don't know how at this point in time it's got to be something to do with preconception conception something in pregnancy something about early life nutrition but it's not just maternal exposures we need to look at paternal exposures and we really need to understand better even in terms of breastfeeding how to best manipulate breast milk composition to be protective of allergies so the fact that you're breastfeeding is great but perhaps there's something we could have done to make your breast milk even more allergy preventative or have more of an immunoregulatory profile than what it had at the time Most of what Dr. Venter and I talked about was focused on disease prevention in infants, but modulating the microbiome should also be a good way to fix disease, assuming we could make long-lasting or permanent changes to it. Can we shift the adult microbiome? I think theoretically speaking, if you could put an infant in a box and an adult in a box, it would probably be equally easy or difficult to shift their microbiome. The reason we see such a dynamic shift in an infant microbiome is because you almost can't stop the shift. They're going to be born, then they're going to be breast or infant formula fed, then they're going to start eating and their diet is going to diversify. Whether it goes into a bad diet or a good diet, that remains to be seen. But this is why we normally say that over the first 3 years of life, we see a very dynamic change into the infant's gut microbiome. And I just think it is because the environment changes so they go from lying in a bed to crawling sticking everything in their mouth to eventually starting walking and going outside and get more environmental exposure and i've also explained about the change in diet i think the perhaps if i could use the word stubborn perhaps there may be some stubborn effect of the adult gut micro gut microbiome i'm not sure whether that's really been studied and i personally do think that if you can get an adult to change their eating patterns completely they may lose weight and they may start to access exercise you will see just as a dynamic shift 
in their gut microbiome over that year or two years where they move from high fat, high protein diet, being obese and no exercise to now having a predominantly um, plant-based diet, having lost all the weight and much more exercise. I, I think that shift would be just as dynamic as you would see in an infant. But most adults don't change everything they do completely. To recap, the microbiome and loss of microbial diversity is involved in the current epidemic of immune disease. A healthy microbiome is a healthy ecosystem where all the players do their parts, and more importantly, do what our immune system has evolved to expect. A dysbiotic microbiome can do lots of wrong things. It might fail to make chemicals or nutrients we need, it might punch holes in our barriers, it might cause persistent inflammation, or it might simply fail to tell the immune system to calm down. But this isn't just conjecture. Studies have shown that the microbiome can directly cause or prevent food allergy and eczema. Pretty much everyone working on immune disease knows this to be true. Isn't it strange that you didn't know? That you were still wondering where allergic disease comes from? I know the reason that the microbiome and barrier dysfunction isn't talked about widely is that there's still a lot to be learned, a lot to be clarified, and most doctors hate making vague recommendations like, eat more plants, eat a diverse diet, limit maternal exposures. Instead, especially in America, people wanna be able to give you a pill. Just as Dr. Getzelman called it in the first episode, it's the one ill, one pill model. I really disagree with this approach. It doesn't matter exactly how smoking during pregnancy can cause damage to the fetus. We wouldn't wait to figure out every detail before we told pregnant women to stop smoking. Why is this any different? Why aren't we telling people to use fewer antibiotics, eat better, limit their exposures? I think we should tell people the truth and give them the tools to help themselves and their kids. So that's what I'm going to do. The next episode is on treatments, to help parents understand what their options are today and where research is going next. And the last episode covers preventative strategies some doctors are thankfully already recommending to their parents. Until next time on Fixing Sick. Fixing Sick was written and produced by me, Mina Lele. Audio engineering by Chris Whitmore. The opinions I state in this podcast are my own. My guests only said what they said, and any mistakes are totally my own.